Hello, everyone. Uh, we're here, episode number 14 of the Treatment Room Secrets podcast, hosted by Neil Asher Education. We have a special, different, maybe unique guest today. Um, he is a therapist of a sort, and we will jump into that later on in the podcast. Um, but I'm here with Robin Horsfall. Robin is a very ins inspirational character. Um, and we will dive into his history, uh, maybe some um, leadership anecdotes, maybe some different perspectives that he can offer us. Um, and really just here to have a conversation. And I also read, Robin, about uh, some um, severe, um, I, I think I can categorize them as severe injuries that you've faced. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming, and uh, some, uh, some other stuff as well that I'm assuming have some treatment stories behind them, uh, maybe positive, maybe negative, maybe something in between. Uh, but I'd love to dive into those. Uh, but before that, your, your book that I believe came out about 20 years ago? Well, my, my first published book, yeah, um, which is Fighting Scared. So I was going to ask you about the title. Um, yeah, um, Fighting Scared is my autobiography up to, um, up to about the age of 45. And fighting scared, I sat down with Heather, my wife, and we were trying to figure out a title. And the first title was Can't, ca Can't Catch Me, I'm a Rubber Duck. Um, or, you know, so um, that wasn't really the, that was, that was just a stand-in until we figured out what we wanted to do. And she said to me, what's the book about? And um, I said, well, an awful lot of it's about fighting. And she said, okay, and why were you fighting? And I said, well, a lot of the time I was fighting because I was scared of getting hurt. And so we ended up with Fighting Scared. And you have to go into the depth of the book for that because it relates a time when um, some people almost beat me to death while I was asleep in my bed. And I vowed that that would never happen again. And so I was in trouble an awful lot after that simply because I wasn't going to give anybody the opportunity to, to hurt me that badly again. So Fighting Scared ended up being the title. But it's besides that specific incident that I think you're referring to, um, it seemed like you had a life before that full of some fear, bullying yeah. um, in all different places that you ended up. Yeah. Um, the first seven years of my life, um, I didn't have a father. My father was in prison. And so I was brought up by my mother and my grandmother predominantly. So I lacked a, a male role model in my life. And um, that's um, quite a, a gap um, that's created when a boy especially, I'm not sure about a girl, but a boy especially lacks a father figure, lacks a male role model, lacks somebody who teaches him how to behave like a man and um, <clears throat> or be masculine, it's joshing, laughing, rolling on the floor, wrestling with the boys, feeling confident because you, um, cause you and, and developing that young personality so it's not living in fear of the unknown all the time um and i lack that so when it um when by the time i was a teenager that 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 piece that was missing was vitally showed quite dramatically because um my stepfather when he was he adopted me when i was seven my mother divorced my stepfather came in his way of um dealing with me for discipline was to beat me into silence and so I describe it as he took away my voice. When you take away someone's voice, when you beat them into silence, you take away their ability to negotiate, their ability to laugh at themselves, their ability to smile, to make friends, to communicate. 
And so I became quite a sullen and difficult and lonely young person. Now, when you're sullen and difficult and distant from people, inevitably they're going to dislike you. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so by the time I was uh, 14, I was very much a, a lonely, unpopular, um, difficult person. And um, I was failing at school. So um, I volunteered to join the army at 14 and became a soldier at 15 years of age. Um, which in some ways was an escape, but I couldn't escape from myself. So the problems that I had as a teenager at school just carried on into my junior service as a soldier. And again, I, I, I found that it was very, very difficult to make friends, very, very difficult to become part of the group. And because I didn't know the language, I didn't know the nuances, the body language, the masculinity that went with those the processes of growing up. But did, did did because you didn't know the nuances and the masculinity and how to really fit um, in retrospect, are you glad that it worked out that way? Because um, it kind of I've squeezed really, you maybe into a certain direction. Yeah, I've never really thought about it, being glad about it. I I desperately wanted to be one of the boys. I desperately wanted to be one of the gang. As my life developed, I realized I couldn't be no matter what. You can't change yourself that much. Um, I had two options then. It was either be the whipped puppy at the back of the at the back of the pack who was getting kicked and bitten and snapped at all the time, or being the leader. But you could never be in the group. So um, I chose to essentially to lead, um, whether that was subconscious or conscious. I, I wasn't prepared to be the whipped puppy, so I I learned how to fight. I learned how to stand up for myself, and learning how to fight and learning how to stand up for yourself doesn't necessarily make your make you friends, but it certainly stops people beating on you. Did you find that you it took it was a long transition mm. from the first time you decided that this is not going to happen anymore to yeah. me? Um, I'm sure I'm sure it didn't change overnight. So what did that look like? Um, After the fact, it took me uh, six weeks to recover. I had a broken jaw, dislocated jaw, fractured facial bones. My eyes were closed for 10 days from swelling, so I couldn't see the damage. I had broken fingers, broken ribs. Um, and are these guys from your, yeah, they from were, your unit? From they, were, they, they were two two men that came into the room drunk. I was the only person asleep in bed, and they beat me up for something to do not because they had a particular grudge against me or a particular problem with me, but um, there I was in bed asleep early because I was not much of a drinker. And um, they woke me up by beating me with two broom handles. And um, then they carried on the beating for well over 30 minutes. And so it was, um, and um, then they covered me up with a sheet and uh, a corporal went to um, tell me not to stop making such a loud noise in my sleep he thought I was snoring and he pulled the sheet back and there was this bloody bloody mess underneath it and got me sent to hospital so um, when I got back and recovered afterwards um, I made sure that uh, I became quite psychotic I think um, psychopathic in the sense that if any I didn't go out beating people up but if there was somebody looking for it then I was quite happy to give it to them and so I went from being this quite sort of kind of insular cut off young person to being an extremely aggressive insular cut off person um 
and um, I was in the right place for it because I was in the parachute regiment and I was in Aldershot and it was a violent place uh, full of men who were expected to fight for a living. If you, you can't be a paratrooper unless you are prepared to fight. Did the, f did the fear disappear once you made this transition in your brain, this psychotic transition? Not, not initially, no. I mean, anger over, overcomes fear and they're part of the same coin, really. So by being angry, you, you manage to put the fear aside. You just decide, this is it, I'm going for this. And um, I found that I was, as I, as I got into more and more conflicts, that I was quite capable of dealing with. I was extremely fit. And, um, and um, you, you often, and I didn't drink very much, which often gave me a huge advantage over people who were looking for trouble because they were looking for trouble because they usually drunk. And so that, that's a big, that was a big step in the right direction. I never lost a, a physical a physical engagement with anybody uh, after that point in time. Um, it didn't mean that uh, there weren't people capable of beating me. I was still wise enough to avoid people who looked too powerful and too strong or in gangs. But um, I wasn't prepared to be bullied. I wasn't prepared to be intimidated by anybody. And um, that stayed with me until I was 21 and I went to Special Forces. And while I was doing the Special Forces selection, that's when I met my wife, Heather. At the, uh, at the selection? Yeah. Oh. Now, she was uh, a local girl. And um, I met her in a, a in a bar one evening and um, said I couldn't resist her beautiful smile. And I still can't. <laughs> um, and she, um, she got into the cage with this uh, nasty wolf who'd been poked too many times with a stick and um, gave me back my humanity in many ways. She um, taught me how to show my feelings, how to love, how to trust. Um, and uh, we got married and we had children. And um, without her, I think I would have been an absolutely dedicated, nasty um, super soldier. But I would have had a rather un unhappy life in general so the book fighting scared mm. i'm going to take you to, sorry the sas because mm -hmm. you mentioned the sas selection i don't want to store over something else now um the sas selection that's where you met heather mm -hmm. but what made you make that transition um i'm assuming you knew that it's it is a big jump from the paratroopers to the sas yeah um it was um, to cock a snoot at authority, really. I'd been in a, in a special unit, which was a guided missile unit, in the parachute regiment called the Vigilant Platoon. And they disbanded us because a new missile was coming in. And they promised us we could go back to our parent battalions. And my parent battalion was the 2nd Battalion in the parachute regiment. And uh, then they changed their mind. Well, they broke a promise. And I knew that there was something they couldn't stop me doing which was filling in the paperwork to volunteer to go to special forces. And I was um, at the uh, absolute minimum age that you could actually volunteer, 21. You had to do three years of regular service first. And I went into the office to fill in the forms. And as I say, it was just because they'd broken their promise to me. It wasn't a great ambition of mine, but I was going to show them that they couldn't break their promises to me. And I went in the office to fill in the forms. And there was somebody at the back of the room who said, you'll be back with your tail between your legs. You're far too young. And um, he was wrong. 
Uh, he was nearly right because I failed the first time. I got an opportunity to do it again. So you were one of the youngest guys there? Yeah, yeah. I was one of the youngest men to pass special air service selection in the 1970s. And um, But it took me two goes at it. In the summer of 1978, I tried. I wasn't mentally um, strong enough. Can you can we dive into that? What, yeah. what, what do you mean by not mentally strong enough? Um, I think I the, saw I think I yeah. saw you describe that it was also one of the coldest winters. Well, that's the one I passed. Okay. The, the summer selection in '78, um, the test week. So SAS selections a whole year long, um, but the first month is in the mountains, with the final week, the final five days being called test week which is the equivalent of doing five marathons over five days over the mountains with weight alone. And I got to alone. The, alone. Yeah. And I got to the fourth day and um, uh, it was raining. There was tussock grass everywhere. I kept falling over and my mind started to switch to the 40 mile march, which was the fifth day. And that undermined my confidence. I started thinking about tomorrow rather than just finishing the problem I had today, which was to get to the end of this particular march. I also had a 50-pound Bergen on my back, which was which had rubbed two big red bloody sores in, in my uh, midriff, and they were bleeding and very, very painful. And mentally, I just, uh, I just cracked and uh, decided to withdraw, voluntarily withdraw. But the um, staff involved thought that I had very good potential. And they asked me to stay on till January to have another go. And so that three three to four months, I had the mountains. I had a lot of freedom to go and prepare myself better. And there are photographs of me that I have from the first one where I look quite quite young and chubby compared to the second one four months later where I look um, like a, a very powerful athlete because I've had that four months in the mountains just working very, very hard and getting ready. Um, and January 1979 was one of the coldest winters in the last 50 years in the United Kingdom. And we started with 57 or 58 of us, and only eight of us passed, and one person died on the course. Um, and that's just, that's just the first four weeks. And then you go on to do continuation training. Uh, which we did in the jungles of Belize. Can I can I stop yeah. you first at sure. the um, like failing the first one, mm. and I'm assuming you took some mental um, lessons from that. Did, is there anything that you specifically singled out and decided uh, to improve on? Um, to not like, for example, you mentioned that you were thinking about problem number three before solving problem number one. Yeah. So was that one of the things, and was there anything else that you decided that you can improve on? I think um, the, the the big thing was that um, when you go out on cold, wet mountains um, day after day after day, your body's burning four to 5,000 calories, maybe even 6,000 calories a day, and I wasn't eating enough. And I would come back, I would go to bed, get up in the morning, have breakfast, and go back out again and try to keep the weight of my Bergen down um, by not p packing in lots and lots of extra food. Well, by the time I got round to the second course, I realized that, you know, the biggest issue is fuel. You need a lot of fuel. You need a lot of calories. So um, I would get up in the morning, eat as much as I possibly could, carry extra food, eat it during the march, and then get to the end of the day's march, get back into Hereford, and then go down to the local chip shop and get pie and chips and two pints of Guinness to pack in another 2,000 calories before going to bed. 
and then getting up at five o'clock the next morning ready to go for the next march so refueling was a huge part of it because i was young i was fit i was capable the body was capable of recovering but it needed the calories to burn and fitness does it do you feel that you had to improve oh yeah yeah i i, I got i was pretty fit but i wasn't at the level that was genuinely required. As I said, five marathons over five days over mountains with weight. Um, but by the time that four months was up, I was, I was, um, yeah, I was very, very much up for it. I was, I was looking forward to it. It wasn't, it wasn't a frightening challenge that I had to encounter. It was something I was going out there to show off at. Yeah. I was, I was, I was good and I knew I was ready for it. Yeah. And eight passed out of 50. Eight passed out of 58. Yeah. Out of fifty-eight, are those uh, are those numbers normal? Is that yeah, I think about ten to twelve percent is about normal, but that's just passing the first four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, carry carry on with that. What happens after that first? Well, then you go yeah. off. Uh, you go off. Spend some time in a month in the jungles. The jungle we used at that time was Belize, in Central America. Um, you come back from there, um, and um, you. Uh, are assessed again and if you pass that phase you then go on to do combat survival instructors course the last week of which you're sent out on the ground with a partner and you're chased by a battalion of troops for a so, week so before you're assigned a partner all throughout that time because you mentioned that the f those first mm. four weeks you're alone yeah doing those things alone yeah. and when you're in the jungle is it also very individual individualistic no, or is no, it no you're in groups of four or five so you're in patrols uh, special forces patrol training really um, which tend to be four or five man groups. So the, then the teamwork comes in. You know, are you prepared to share your last biscuit? Um, are you prepared to go and get the water from the river every morning, carry it all the way back up the muddy track to the guys and take your turn and do your share? So, or are you the sort of person who's going to pretend you haven't seen something or look for somebody else to do it all the time? And that's what the staff are watching for. So you're obviously with very elite individuals, Did you learn something there about human nature, though? Um, I don't think at the age of 21 I was thinking very much about human nature. I think I was just thinking about myself. Um, I was thinking about succeeding. I was thinking about passing this test and getting into this special unit. So I don't think that was something I really thought very much about. So you're assigned a partner, and then you're you said you're chased. Yeah, you're chased across the um, cold, wet forests of... Uh, Western England uh, for a week. Um, the, all you've got on is a t-shirt, a great coat, a jumper, and a pair of old um, barrack room trousers and your boots, and a tiny little button compass. And you have to get to various checkpoints un uncaptured uh, over the following week. And then finally you're captured, and you're questioned, you're tactically questioned or interrogated for 24 hours. And if you pass that, then if you're already a paratrooper, you get your berry and cap badge and you join your squadron, but you're on probation because for the next six months, then you have to pass a personal test and a troop skill. And my personal skill was a paramedic. I qualified as a paramedic and my troop skill was mountain climbing. So after a complete 12 months, they then look at your record over that year and they qualify you and you're allowed to stay for another two years before you're reassessed again. And what are the numbers of the individuals that pass the the full year of selection? So twelve percent pass the. Yeah, I think I think it's probably eight to ten percent that kind of thing. You lose a f you, you lose most of them in the first month, and then the the, the 
the odd individual as the as the following five months pass on. Can you sort of point your finger at, based on what you've seen, the type of individual that managed managed manages to squeeze into that eight percent success? Yeah, uh, the professional soldier, the paratrooper, the rural marine, the uh, tough infantryman, predominantly with uh, a few good corpsmen um, attached as well uh, that, um, that managed to do it as well. And out of those corpsmen, most of the good ones, most of the best ones were Royal Engineers. Um, they tend to come from that category. And in my time, most of them came from what was the Parachute Brigade because we had a, a 5,000 paratroopers in the British Armed Forces at that time. We don't anymore. So most of them tended to come from there. Were they surprised that you were able to pass that second time? Because you were, you were young. Um, well, I never went back and asked them. <laughs> but um, had I, um, I, I, I was very, very pleased that I didn't have to go back with my tail between my legs and prove them right. Um, and um, no, I, I, think I, I think I received a fair amount of respect for getting in there and doing it and passing it. Probably something that I will never experience, an SAS selection. Um, but I cannot help but always think to myself, if if I were to step into that situation, how would I do? And I think that's a thought that a lot of people have. Um, do you think that the percentages would be higher, the success percentages of passing the selection would be higher if it wasn't voluntary? And it was something that you had to complete. No, no, it's it's it it has to mean a great deal to you. Um, to me, it um, if I hadn't passed, I think I don't know whether I would have um, continued with the British Army anyway. To pass it, it you have to be driven. I was I think I was driven by a deep seated insecurity, the need to constantly prove myself, the need to show that I was as good as the next man, which still stems back to the previous story about my childhood and uh, being bullied. Um, so a big part of it was that, um, what was the question again? If, if you think the success rate would be higher, if you throw in a hundred guys into the SAS selection, but they have no choice, it's not voluntary. Hmm. They have to pass it to survive. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, special forces, even, you know, good, good soldiers are people who are people who want to be soldiers. They're not people who are forced to be soldiers. So starting with volunteers is a good place to start and then selecting them down into different categories, people who want to do certain jobs, people who are um, um, want to be electricians and technicians and tradesmen appointed in that direction, people who want to be fighting soldiers end up in that direction and people who want to be special forces soldiers are a cut out of that, um, out of that huge seed pool. And so, no, I don't think um, forcing anybody to go and do that kind of thing would make any any would raise the numbers of quality people in it. But then again, it, it depends who sets the who sets the standards. If you want more people, and you just lower the standard, yeah, uh, and have the standards <laughs> lowered since you were there, or have I, they risen? I don't know. I, I really, genuinely don't know because I'm not involved with that anymore. But what I would say is that we had a seed pool feeding special forces in the 1970s uh, with an army of 150,000 men. Now we've got a seed, full, a seed pool of 65,000 men and we're trying to maintain the same numbers of Special Forces troops with an army half the size. 
So there are bound to be differences. Um, I think the selection is, is, sim is still just as hard, but the retention of people is much, much harder. Um, as an army gets smaller, as it, as it has less uh, money to spend on itself, um, then people are less inclined to stay and make it a 25-year profession. Um, when I was in, that was always an option for everybody to stay in for 22 years. So you passed that second selection. Mm -hmm. um, you're now in the SAS, one of the youngest guys or the youngest guy <coughs> at um, that time? Yeah, there, there weren't anybody, uh, there wasn't anybody, there might have been people a few months younger, I don't know. Yeah, but how were you, 22? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was 22 just before I got badged, yeah. And did you maybe finally find your a place where you feel at home maybe you fit you're with people like yourself like-minded i think um i think initially i did um i got stuck into the process and the studies and the medicine and the mountaineering and i was thrilled by it and i had this beautiful girl as well to come home to um, which uh, so I seem to have uh, quite an awful lot of good things going in, on in my life. But um, the problems of mixing and being one of the boys was still difficult. Um, looking back, I think maybe I had some kind of autistic tendencies in some ways because as a kid, I'd actually believe that um, the, the movies where somebody said a man gives his word and uh, if you follow the rules. and um, And then I discovered that People who broke the rules and people who didn't do a good job were more popular and more likely to be promoted than very efficient, clinical, uh, Mr. Spock-type creatures um, who did everything right, obeyed all the rules, uh, tried to succeed. And that, that was very much me. You're sitting there thinking, well, I got higher marks than him. I can do the job better than him, but he's more popular, so he gets promoted. And that's an institutional problem. So you didn't rise on your merits. You need charisma. You need popularity to rise as well. And um, I didn't have that at that time. Is that something you tried to focus on developing, maybe changing your ways? I, I, I don't think I set out specifically to do that. I always tried to um, get on with people. But um, telling the truth is not something that um, endears you to other people. Um, the classic, uh, does my bum look fat in this um, uh, answer is, you know, everybody knows it's, no, it looks great. Um, but I was very much in, of a mind that if I was in special forces and we were going to war and we needed to do things right, we needed to tell the truth about what was and what wasn't good enough and what needed changing. And um, that made me abrasive and difficult. Um, people don't want to hear it because it means they've got to do more work. It means they've got to change. It means they've got to listen. And I was the youngest. So to use a British term, I was a gobshite. And that didn't help. I, if I'd been six or seven years older, I'd have been a little wiser. I'd have known when to keep quiet. I'd have known how to diplomatically voice things. I'd have known how to gather friends of the same opinion before I voiced them. But I didn't at that time, so I was naive. And did it, um, were there consequences to that? Oh, sure, yeah. I, um, by the time I'd done six years, I was 27 years old, I got set up and punished for something I hadn't done. 
and I knew uh, that there was nothing I could do about it. So I purchased my discharge from the army um, before they could kick me out of the uh, SAS and send me back to the Paras. And that was, I think that's a, uh, there's a story behind this that I think you almost started saying uh, yeah. downstairs outside the studio. Yeah, well, um, I won't go into the depth of the story because it's too long and it's in Fighting Scared anyway. But I was put on colonel's orders and I knew that I was going to get returned to unit. Now, I was on special forces pay. I had a wife, I had a mortgage, I had a child and I had another one on the way. And um, there was no way I could take the drop in pay that was going to happen. I, I wasn't going to go backwards in my life anyway. So I went into um, I went into the office and I I basically filled in the papers to purchase my discharge from the British Army immediately, which cost me I think six hundred pounds, which was you know which was a couple of months' pay at that time, and. Then I went on orders to see the colonel the next morning and he said, um, how come you've broken every standard operational procedure in the book? And I said, I didn't break any. And he said, yes, you did. It says here. And the major who was in charge of my squadron said, no, no, Horsfall was in the other patrol, sir. Oh, yes, Horsfall, he said. You, um, you haven't done anything wrong this time, but you've been walking on a razor blade for a long time and I have no alternative but to send you back to the parachute regiment. So you don't need to be a lawyer to figure out. He's just said, you haven't done anything wrong, but I'm going to punish you. So I said, well, sir, I said, um, that's all right. I put my papers in to buy out yesterday. He said, don't do that horseful. He said, the wind blows cold on the outside. I said, it don't blow too fucking warm in here, does it? So ah, get out, get out, get out. You know, and, um, and I was out of the army within two weeks. Wow, just like that. Yep. Did you feel betrayed? I did. I was very bitter. I was I was very bitter about the whole thing. And um, a couple of weeks later, one of the officers um, came to me and said, look, we're very unhappy about what happened to you. Would you like to come back? But I was so resentful and bitter that I said, no, I'm OK. And I also had a job that I was earning twice as much money by then as well. And I'd taken off the burger and I'd thrown it away. I'd spat my dummy out of the pram and, and I was going on to a different phase of my life. But I was extremely bitter about it, you know. Did you miss the... Um camaraderie of yep. being with your team? I did. I missed being in uniform. I've been a soldier since the age of 15. Um, so 12 years. And um, it gave me a lot of security. It gave me a lot of status. Um, I loved being a soldier. I loved the studies. I loved uh, almost everything about it. And um, so, yeah, I was extremely bitter about it. And um, yeah, what was your relationship with fear now at 27 years old? Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd stopped being frightened. I'd experienced death on several occasions and come close to it on several occasions myself by then. And I accepted it. Um, so I wasn't frightened of, I'm still not frightened of dying. I understand it's as natural as being born. And I've seen how quickly somebody can be switched off. Just switched off, gone. Just like that. It doesn't frighten me if there's anything about death that frightens me it would be how will heather manage how are the kids how's who's going to look after the bills who's going to empty the bins on tuesday <laughs> um how it's going how my death would affect the people i left behind could they cope making well, sure that they're all right but the actual 
process of being switched off and no longer existing, um, it will come to us all. It's come to an awful lot of my friends, um, uh, many of them much, much younger than me. So, yeah, it's part of it's part of the natural process. Uh, living in pain is far worse than dying. During your time at the SAS, could you have been successful if you still were somewhat controlled by fear? I'm not sure I understand the question. You're put in very dangerous situations. Mm. Um, was fear still part of your life when facing these challenges? Anxiety, perhaps, being anxious, um, being um, having the adrenaline flowing through your system, but you trained right on the edge of danger all the time. So um, there's a, a very famous writer, Malcolm Gladwell, who uh, wrote uh, Blink and Tipping Point and what the dog saw. And uh, he figured out that um, people can't make minor cognitive decisions when the heartbeat goes up over 145 beats a minute. So if you get people and you make it extraordinarily fit and you train them close to the edge of danger all the time, when it comes to the real thing, the heartbeat's going to stay low, so they're going to do a good job. Whereas if somebody sits around in a car all day and eats donuts and then has to chase somebody um, who might have a gun, by the time their heartbeat goes above 150 beats a minute, all they can do is pull the trigger and hope, hope for the best because they can't actually recognize whether that person's a genuine threat or not which is why special forces soldiers do such a good job under such great pressure. So fear, um, everybody's frightened of something, but uh, I'm not frightened for myself, for my own personal safety. You mentioned medicine mm -hmm. during your time. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, uh, I was Britain's ninth paramedic, I think. Um, and uh, the, the, first, um, the first people in the United Kingdom that qualified as registered emergency medical technicians were in the special air service and the courses had just started and I was one of the first people on the courses. Is uh, that something you seeked? Oh yeah, um, I was um, as a 12, 14, 12, 13 year old, I was a St. John's ambulance boy. I used to get into football for nothing with my, um, with my St. John's ambulance bag and learn basic uh, first aid and I, 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 got a great, I got a great deal of satisfaction out of it. As a young paratrooper, I did my advanced first aid courses. So going on to become a qualified uh, emergency medical technician was um, was a, a step in a direction. Because when I when I tried to join the army at fifteen, I didn't try to join the paras. I tried to join the Royal Army Medical Corps, and they said, "No, no, you know, we we don't think you're up to that. You know, we we don't think you're smart enough for that. We 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 think you make a good paratrooper." Um, which was probably down to my sullen and aggressiveness, you know, but um, sullenness and aggressiveness. Um, but yeah, and um, during my time, I ran clinics in the Oman, where we discovered a measles epidemic, ep epidemic and saved an awful lot of children's lives. Um, I ran clinics in Malaya, in uh, Belize, in Brunei. Um, I saved quite a few people's lives afterwards. I was the... I was the medical officer on a gold mine in Guyana after I left the British Army. And the company was called Oh My Gold, O-M-A-I, but it was a French-Canadian company in the middle of the Guyanese jungle in Central America, North South America, actually. And, um, yeah, I was their medical officer for a while and uh, saved quite a few people during that phase and trained all the staff as well. So 
medicine was something I was really thrilled by. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier as well that um, I had been a shiatsu masseur. When I was the bodyguard to Rafiq Hariri, the Prime Minister of Lebanon, um, he we were travelling, doing diplomatic um, uh, missions all around the world to get the release of French hostages. And uh, we were in a private jet flying across time zones, and he would get headaches. I'd say, I can get rid of headaches. And he said, well, how can you do that? I said, well, I'm a shiatsu masseur. Would you like um, me to have a go? And so I you did. Were, so you were, you were already educated? Yeah, yeah. I'd, um, I'd already studied it and practiced it. And he said, okay. Uh, he was a bit cynical. And I said... Um, like a lot of people are. Yep. Yeah. I said, I'll get rid of your headaches. He said, well, I can't sleep. I said, well, I can put you to sleep. He said, oh, yeah, go on then. <laughs> in his Lebanese, oh, yes, go on then, in his Lebanese accent. And um, I went, um, okay. So I, I got really, I, I'm, I'm very good with necks and heads. I'm very good at getting stress out of people's necks and heads. And um, so I, I got rid of his headache. And then I said, are you sure you want me to put you to sleep? He said, yep. Okay, so I, I did a thing called Chapman's Reflexology across his ribs and round to, from the center out, round each rib, round each rib. I said, uh, I said, you'll go to sleep. He said, yeah, okay. And four hours later, the phone rang and he said, it was amazing. It was amazing. I slept, I slept, you know, and... Um, and then he said, would you like to go and do a course? So he sent me back to England uh, for as long as I wanted, with as much money as I wanted to spend. And I spent, uh, I think, six weeks, or six to eight weeks, doing aromatherapy, shiatsu, physiotherapy, and any, any other therapies that I could get intensively eight hours a day. And Heather was, Heather was the softest, most malleable human being in the world because I was going home and practicing all these skills on her and taking her into work as a model. And um, and then I went back. Uh, I went back, and I was not only his personal bodyguard, but I was also his personal masseur as well. That's incredible. And but where did you? Where were you exposed to shiatsu before that? Yeah, I'd um, I'd been the bodyguard for a man called John Akablay Mazer in London, who was uh, from Ghana, and he had a personal assistant who was Korean called Kim, and uh, Kim. Uh, uh, adjusted my neck one night when I'd um, been doing some training and cricked my neck, and he started to teach me, and um, I I got I got quite thrilled by it. And you can see the links between um, acupressure and acupuncture, and uh, without having needles and without having um, the necessary training for acupuncture, you can achieve a huge amount with uh, shiatsu, which is basically the same subos, the same pressure points, but using your fingers. Um, to create pressure on those points, to release endorphins, to relax tendons, to relax muscles, and allow the free flow, as some people would describe it, of energy around the body. And you don't have to understand the science, providing what you do works. So if somebody says, yes, my headache's gone, or yes, you've cr cricked my neck now and it's, um, it's no longer painful, yes, I feel better, then that's evidence enough that it works. Is it something you still practice in any way? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I have um, I have some age issues with arthritis now, but um, yeah, I often massage Heather's uh, lower back. She has some sciatica problems, and um, she loses the feeling in her left her left foot, and I can bring that back by massaging the right places in the lower back, and um, where the sciatic nerve comes under pressure. And uh, she can feel the, the tingling and the feeling starting to come back into her feet. And um, occasionally you'd be sat in a place where somebody says they've got a headache and I say, I can help you. 
I was sat in the pharmacy a little while back and a lady um, said she had an incredibly bad headache and it turned out that she had a compression on one side of her neck. So in the shop, I actually pulled up a chair, did some massage on her neck, loosened her neck up and then... <coughs> and um, and uh, her pain went away. So yeah, still do it every now and then, but not as a profession. Yeah, but did it uh, maybe open an avenue for you to find out... Uh find out more about alternative therapies out there? Yeah, I've always believed in an awful lot of these things. Um, were you exposed, and read about them. Were you exposed to anything new, maybe in your time um, spent in these different countries, not in the Western world or not in the UK? Yeah, when I was in Sri Lanka, um, I got some um, tears in my back and got some massage from eyes when I was in Paris some of the bodyguard team we would go and get massage um for therapy for relaxation um but, but i think up to the point of 27 it wasn't something that i was particularly i would i would particularly indulge in because massage centers had another context in the united kingdom but when you get away from the united kingdom you realize that it's a profession it's medicine it's helpful and um and i started to realize that i could do it and i could help people so it enhanced my paramedical training as well. You faced a bunch of injuries in your career, in your life. Um, I read that you, you've been stabbed, mm. uh, you've been shot as mm. well. Um, do you remember those instances? Um, yep. The, um, I got stabbed in a bar fight in Aldershot um, when I was 19 years old. And... Um, We'd come back, just come back from Northern Ireland, a four-month tour, and uh, all the guys go out for a drink, and a fight kicked off. And um, during that fight, it was a bit like the Wild West, but it was real chairs and real fists. Um, during the fight, somebody stuck a knife in my back, and it went into my back just by high up, and it hit a rib and slipped under the scapula, so it never penetrated through the ribs and got to the lungs. It's and it was stuck in my back sideways. And I remember feeling it and going down on my knees on the floor and the fight still going on around the top of me and crawling across through these legs and up a spiral staircase to get out onto the street. And um, I heard the knife fall out of my back and rattle down the stairs. And I knew that if um, I went to the military hospital that I would be arrested for being involved in this fight. So I spent my last five pounds and got a taxi to a civilian hospital and got sorted out and then walked the five miles home um, and um, moved on from there. But um, Is that the next day? After, after the, the same night, yeah. The same night you walked home? Yeah, in the early hours of the morning, yeah. Um, and um, so, yeah, getting stabbed is a, a pretty frightening thing. You know, it's extraordinarily painful. Burns and burns and burns and... Um, but I also knew that um, my lungs were okay. I knew I could breathe. I knew uh, the, 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 I was bleeding quite a lot. It was running down my back and down my trouser legs. But um, I was, I'd, I'd been a soldier for a while, so I knew what a lot of blood really meant. And um, if you break a milk bottle on a table, um, it'll cover a huge area. A pint of milk cover a huge area. So you have to have an awful lot of, an awful lot uh, a blood loss to cover a table this size that we're sitting about now, six by eight or something like that. Um, so I knew it wasn't life-threatening, 
but it was um, it was a, a hole in my back and it was bleeding to hell. Like hell. And yeah, is it a burning sensation when you get stabbed? It was stabbed? for me. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a thump, and then a pain, and then a burning. And um, uh, I guess in my particular case, it was fortunate that a knife fell out, slipped out, and fell away. Um, having something stuck in there is probably far, far worse because that's going to maintain the pain over a longer period of time. But it also allows you to bleed. <laughs> and how did that heal with you um, leaving the hospital so quickly? Yeah, I just um, I, I got cleaned up, stitched up. Um, I was supposed to go back, but I didn't. I got one of my friends to take the stitches out after 10 days. And um, I healed. I was young. I was fit. I got better. I didn't get infection. And... Um, I bluffed my way on, got, I, I carried on, did all my duties, didn't go sick. And so there was no relationship between me and the authorities and that bar fight that night. And so, yeah. And then you were shot as well. Yeah, I was, um, I was shot in the leg, in uh, lower leg in Northern Ireland, um, running down the street. Um, I went over. I thought I'd um, twisted my ankle. I knew we were under fire, but I didn't know I'd been hit. And uh, my guys dragged me through the barrack room doors and uh, it was pouring with rain. It was dark. It was about one o'clock in the morning. And they said, where have you been hit? And I said, I've twisted my effing ankle. And um, and they sort of looked disappointed and strolled away and left me lying there in the rain until the medic came. And then a Saracen armoured vehicle ambulance came and they put me in the back and the medic switched the lights on as we drove off to the hospital. And he said, uh, I think you've been shot. And what it was, it was a very low caliber bullet, 2-2. And it had, um, it had gone through my, it had gone just above my putties, which are a piece of cloth above my boot, into my lower leg, uh, just below the calf. And that had knocked me over. And it had caused me to seriously twist my ankle, which was a far more serious injury than the bullet wound. It had gone in, it, it, it just about touched the bone and stopped. So it hadn't, if it had been a high-velocity weapon, it would have gone right through the bone and smashed my, smashed my leg, but it didn't. So I got to hospital, and um, I almost wanted to go back and say, hey, guys, I have been shot, but too late. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I got a couple of weeks off, and it was Christmas, 1976. And um, I came back after a couple of weeks, and um, I was supposed to be on light duties, um, but I wasn't because you don't have light duties really in Northern Ireland and active service. And only a few days later, I was out on patrol again and I laid on a bomb um, accidentally. I discovered I was laying on a bomb and um, scraped away some earth on a, on a pile that I was laying on and uh, discovered that there was a galvanized bucket with a taped on lid full of explosive face in a post office wall. Um, and so that was an interesting experience as well, <laughs> while I was on light duties. <laughs> was And, you know, suffering those injuries, uh, besides that, were you, was your body pretty robust? Because I'm assuming it was exposed to a lot. Yeah. Um, um, I loved fitness. Um, fitness was a way of gaining status. If people didn't like you, but you could run faster than them and carry more weight than them and do a job better than them, and it gave you uh, a position of strength to stand upon no matter what. But for yourself, regardless of people's opinions, did it give you some uh, emotional freedom, some psychological sure. freedom? Oh, yeah, I loved. I mean, there's, when, you're, when you're young 
your body's at its absolute best you know bouncing up and down stairs running over mountains um challenging yourself all the time seeing what you're capable of doing making your body and it recovers so quickly your um nowadays if i get a scratch on my hand i'll go and go, hey what did i scratch my hand on oh well, that was two weeks ago because i'm 66 soon um but you know you you get a scratch and it's gone within 48 hours it's gone um you get a cut it heals up you got an infection you get better you get a cold you manage to work through it um being young and being fit you know enjoy it because it doesn't last forever there was this video um, that came out recently of the Navy SEALs mm -hmm. where they had to sing happy birthday while being sprayed out with pepper spray. Did you see that? No, I didn't. That sounds like a silly game to me. It just caused a, a bit of an uproar mm. um, about all the Navy SEAL training and the Navy SEAL selection, criticizing maybe how difficult it might be, maybe too difficult, putting people's lives at risk. What did they learn from that? Nothing. But at the SAS selection, did you ever feel that your life was at risk? Because you did mention that we did have an individual who died. Yeah, um, but not because of somebody's stupidity. Um, playing stupid games like that is just dumb. It, nobody benefits from it. It's just a way of making somebody in, uncomfortable. Um, and nobody learns anything from it. But you know, if you're up on the top of the mountains and it's blowing a 40 mile an hour gale in the middle of um, in the middle of winter, and there's snow and ice on the ground, and you're alone, and um, you're in serious danger of going down with hypothermia, if you don't have the right equipment, or your map reading goes awry, or you get lost, um, or you don't have the will to carry on, then that's 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 serious so training you for that preparing you for that but who the hell is going to prepare you to sing happy birthday and spray pepper spray in your face that's just seriously dumb and somebody has been taking their authority um to a place where they shouldn't have been taking it because it's irrelevant to the training did you see people though take their authority into places where they shouldn't have not in not in the SAS, but in um, in the parachute regiment I did during the training phase, and it was frowned upon um, in many ways by many people in authority. Um, when I was seventeen, going through parachute regiment depot, uh, one night one of the corporals got the whole platoon out. Um, this is January, uh, nineteen seventy five, and started taking us over the assault course. Now, the assault course had lots of water obstacles in it where you jumped over logs over water, but he made you go under the logs and through the water. But he did this on his own recognizance. He didn't have any authority to do it. And he kept running us around. He was pushing people's heads under the water with a broom handle standing above, peeing on people beneath, and so on, um, until he got caught by the sergeant. And then the sergeant took him aside and uh, sent us all back to our rooms to get cleaned up and sorted out and made it absolutely clear to him that uh, he'd broken the rules, that he had no authority to do that. And uh, I don't know what his punishment was, but it, was, it wasn't it uh, was thought very highly of. You get, uh, you get characters in armies with rank, with authority, that are bullies. That's a simple fact. You also get people in the military who are absolute geniuses and wonderful leaders. Um, bullies very rarely make good leaders. 
Leadership's about inspiration, about people, about showing people the way, about guiding people, about taking them on the path that um, you've been on previously and uh, building up their courage and their confidence and their life. And um, managing people is about getting them to do what you want, using your authority, using fear, using money. But um, leading people is about inspiring them making them want to do what you want and um, some of the bad experiences teach you what you shouldn't do some of the bad people in life teach you what you shouldn't do um, so that you can try to become an inspiring leader of the future did you have a couple individuals uh, who stuck out for you during your time in the SAS that were that ideal inspirational leader yeah. Yeah, one of the one of the most inspiring um, individuals in the special air service to me is a man called John Wiseman, Lofty Wiseman. He was my first training wing sergeant major, and I imagined that everybody would be like him. And the thing that you didn't want to do was to disappoint him. He was such a superb man manager. He was funny, strict, firm, fair. Um, he had courage and he led by example and um, he had great integrity as well. I call it ice, integrity, uh, integrity, courage and example. And um, he's still somebody I know today and consider to be a friend. He's uh, in his early 80s, uh, John, John Lofty Wiseman, um, an amazing guy. Yeah. And he wasn't necessarily one of the popular or loud. Oh, he, no, he was extraordinarily popular. Yeah, and he still is extraordinarily popular. Um, but um, he he didn't have favourites. He respect, He took each person as an individual and had time for each individual. Um, he would look at you and talk to you. Um, um, I remember one day um, he pulled up. My house was on a bend of a road, and on the other side of the road was a newsagent's. And he pulled up in his car to buy a newspaper. And he saw me mowing the lawn on the other side of the road. And he, uh, he used to call me Horsey. What, you, and he'd say, you all right, Horsey? And I'd say, yeah, how you doing, Lofty? He said, uh, you got kids, haven't you? I said, yeah, how many you got? I got three. And he said, all right. And he went into the newsagents, came out with three Cornettos and brought them across the road. Yeah, I'll give them to your kids. You know, that's the sort of guy he was. But um, that's just as a person. But as a soldier, he was exemplary. As a leader, as a sergeant major, he's exemplary and um, um, and he's he's admired everywhere. He's highly thought of everywhere. He still had his fallouts with people. He was he didn't suffer fools. When did you start karate? Um, I started karate when I was twenty three. Yeah, twenty three. I was been in the SAS then for about eighteen months, and we weren't getting any unarmed combat training. Everything was with guns, 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 pistols, pistols, pistols. So um, a friend of me and my friend of mine, Bob Curry, we went down and joined the local karate club under a teacher called Tom Beardsley. And um, it immediately gave me something that uh, I was missing. I mean, I, I, I would fight. I could be vicious. I could be nasty. I would punch. But um, this took that aggression and channeled it into a skill. And I did it for nearly 30 years. Um, from white belt up to sixth down black belt until eventually I broke my neck and had to stop. So it became a serious part. It became my life. profession. Um, I didn't I set out for it to become my profession, but um, 
um, when would it have been in the early 1990s um, I had a small security business which was failing and had the opportunity to take over a class with three or four children in it and I did and within a few weeks I had 20 within a few months I had 100 and after five years I had a thousand children in southwest London uh, under my organization teaching karate teaching karate how was that teaching oh I, I love teaching teaching I think has always been my true vocation in life to stand up in front of others and impart knowledge but with children um, because 90% of my group was children um, you have this blank canvas and you can take those bad experiences from your younger life and understand what works um, that you, you've got to allow them to have their voice. You've got to allow them to feel confident. You've got to build and develop them and turn them into disciplined, confident, strong adults. Because disciplined, strong, confident adults are usually kind adults because they're not trying to prove something. Whereas people who lack confidence, people who are frightened, tend to be the ones who do the terrible things tend to be the vicious ones, tend to be the unkind ones, because they're bitter. Um, so something I tried to impart to the children, and we started teaching at the age of four, um, right up until, um, and as old as you wish, but um, it was a joy, and it's still a joy. And um, I had the opportunity um, a few weeks ago to go into the local junior school close to my house and teach poetry. Um, to the 10 11 year olds there. I hadn't been in, in front of a class for over 10 years and it was a thrill again just being there because teaching is singing and dancing really it's entertaining it's uh, you know here I am we're going to do this it's going to be great fun and um, the best teachers in the world are teachers that make learning fun and enjoyable and the study is just absorbed in within the fun. Um, and you find that you're able to do that even with today's generation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the kids are the kids, and the adults are the adults. Um, if um, it's, it's not... An instructor is somebody who has a syllabus, who stands up and says, right, this is the syllabus. We're going to do A, B, C, D, fill in these forms, do this, copy this. There we are, off you go. Job done. Next class, please. But um, somebody who actually, it's, it's a bit like a song. If somebody, I could, I could sing a song and it would be flat, it would be lacking in emotion, lacking in feeling. It might be absolutely right in terms of the notes, in terms of the pitch and everything. There's no motion in it. There's no fun in it. There's no joy in it. There's no sadness in it. And teaching is the same. And when you love teaching, when you love imparting knowledge, when you love singing and dancing in front of people, and entertaining them then that comes across and that emotion is imparted to your audience to your kids to your adults and they start to and they start to respond and their eyes are watching you and their smiles are on their faces and they can't wait to get involved and do more of it um I'm only asking about today's generation. Yeah. Oh, that, 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 I think they're any different. I mean, they're all born at the same age. No, uh, but, but <laughs> I'm only mentioning it because you mentioned clean canvas. You get a clean canvas yeah. with them. Um, whereas, you know, some people argue that nowadays, because so much is thrown at them, mm. 
then maybe it's not a clean canvas anymore at that young age. Yeah, I think it is. Um, you, sometimes it, it, it gets muddied, the water gets muddied deliberately um, by too much information or too much confusion. And sometimes it needs sages to take people back to basics and decency and honesty and truth instead of, I think most of the information that people receive today in social media and even in the education system, especially at university, is muddied by political correctness and ideologies rather than the simple basic facts of um, what is good and what is bad, what is good for you, um, what is empirical, em empirical information and how do you verify it um, rather than just uh, working on people's base emotions and frightening them or, or making them think that they have a problem. Because an awful lot of people don't know they've got a problem until somebody else tells them they have. Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You should be upset about that. Well, really, should I? Why? Oh, because you're being oppressed. Oh, really? Why? Oh, because your hair's the wrong colour. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, because your hair's curly. That's what I mean. My hair used to be curly, by the way. <laughs> um, as long as mine? You know, yeah. Oh, no. On occasion, yeah. Very much. Because Heather said she also had the same hair as well. Oh, yeah. Well, Heather's mixed race, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of, some of her uh, curliness comes from her African origins. But um, me, I had that, I had those thick black curls, uh, which could be shaped into a kind of afro in the 1970s. Yeah. Sounds um, appropriate. But, you know, uh, you, 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 people will, I, I have used the derogatory term, people are like chimpanzees with the technology sometimes, because everybody's looking for a, a place on the social ladder, and they're not quite sure where they belong. And so instead of climbing the ladder, they're always trying to pull other people down and push other people down and finding weaknesses in other people so that they can elevate themselves, not realizing that they're not elevating at all, they're just pushing others down. Do you notice that with your presence online? I I know, I, I, I confront people for that kind of behavior. Um, when some, I try not to make personal remarks online or in conversation, um, not even to try to be humorous or funny because Humor is uh, sometimes a, a, an extremely subtle and vindictive way of intimidating and bullying people and making them small. So that, that's those some of the things I've learned in life to um, to try to, if you're going to try to help somebody develop because they're doing something wrong, stick to the facts, stick to the point. Um, don't make it a personal issue. Um, and, um, you know, uh, a good friend of mine in the past called Ken Moffat used to say, never make personal remarks um, because personal remarks hurt. Words hurt. Um, words are the most powerful things we have in our life. We can make people happy. We can make people commit suicide. We can make people get married. We can persuade people to marry us. We can do all sorts of amazing things uh, with words. Um, and we should be far more careful about how we use them. Uh, people who are insecure and inadequate can be incredibly cruel with words and it's usually it usually actually tells us more about them than their victims is karate something you'd recommend for an individual like myself i martial arts um is a study of combat but it's also a study of character it's there to develop character 
Martial arts have good teachers and bad teachers, and like attracts like. A fitness fanatic will attract fitness fanatics. A bully will attract bullies to his classes. And um, a good teacher will attract people like himself to his classes. So it isn't the martial art that's the vital um, catalyst. It's the teacher. It's got to be a good teacher. So with children especially, I always say to people who are asking about which class they should go to, go and watch the teacher. Go and watch how he is with the children. Go and watch how the children are behaving in the class. Do they come out smiling? Are they benefiting from the example he's setting? And then commit them to the class. Um, so it isn't it isn't karate. It isn't the martial art. It's the teacher. The karate for me was the catalyst that allowed me to teach. So um, Have you ever the same at school. Did you ever try any other martial arts? Yeah, yeah, I, I did a little bit of judo and a little bit of jujitsu, um, but uh, I, I realised that I had such a long, long path to travel on just the karate path that um, if I started trying to walk three paths at the same time, I was just going to slow myself down um, according to how many different paths I was walking. So I went back onto that one main path and studied um, Shukukai uh, karate for uh, just over 30 years. And my um, oldest son, Alex, is now the head of my uh, London-based organization because um, when I broke my neck, I had to hand it over to him at 27, and he's been in charge now for 13 years. Yeah. And this is the same spot where you initially substituted in as a teacher for three or four kids? Yeah, yeah. And um, developed into this. Well, it was um, we've got we've got 32 venues in southwest London. Um COVID took away an awful lot of our membership and we're rebuilding now that we're back we moved back a year. Um and we I think we're back up to about 650 and growing steadily, but it takes a long time cuz you know, when kids are taken away from something, they discover something new. Um and all our classes were closed and our staff were on furlough for all that time. And um, so, you know, but Alex is uh, the, uh, the most amazing teacher, especially with disabled children. Um, he's taught in uh, autistic schools. Um, he's um, he just has a natural affinity for working with kids who have who struggle, uh, who are different. And um, a good teacher is somebody who can get nine out of 10 kids to do to achieve. But a fantastic teacher gets the 10th. And Alex is one of those guys that gets the 10th. He gets the 10th person to achieve as well. And that's extraordinarily special. And since your neck injury, you don't practice anymore? No, I can't. Um, I, I did. Um, when my neck recovered, it took about four years. And in that four years, I went to university. Um, what happened? What happened with the injury? <laughs> was it a karate injury? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, Alex was holding a a big impact, big hard impact pad for me. And I was talking to the class. Yeah. And um, when you are really, really good at the applied physics of impact, um, the two knuckles here on your on your fist, when they strike the uh, target, they can, they can have something between one and two tons of impact at that specific point in time. And your body has to be in the absolute correct position to cope with that so that the levers are correct, so that the springs are correct, so that the, 
the impact and the kinetic energy travels into the target and doesn't get redirected through your body. Well, I was talking to the class and my neck was in this position when I hit the pad and it did that with my neck and broke one of the um, uh, processes on C5, I think, up in my neck and cracked a bone there. And um, after that, I couldn't I couldn't carry on doing what I was doing, so I had to change direction. Um, Alex, I'd trained from the age of a baby up until 27, and it was a big, huge step up for him, but he managed to cope with it with my verbal guidance. And, um, and I, I went off to university as an undergrad at the age of 56. Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> I, I, so let's, let's talk about that because I do want to ask, actually before we move into that, I want to ask you about that injury. What the, what, you said the recovery was four years. Mm. What did that look like, surgery? No. <clears throat> First thing was um, I knew I'd hurt my neck. I didn't know how badly. So I went to hospital after the lesson that night. You carried on with the lesson? You just thought Well, it was... yeah, yeah. I just, it, wasn't, it wasn't one of those, oh, oh, my God, I can't move kind of injuries. Um, but I knew I I'd damaged something in my neck. I, I finished the lesson, and then um, on I got terrible headaches. So I went to hospital, and um, I was triaged. Um, and I waited for four hours. During that four hours, um, the headaches got worse. I had some numbness in my left fingers. And um, I got fed up of waiting, so I went home. And I took paracetamol and put hot towels on my neck and coped with it over the next months and carried on teaching. But the headaches got worse. And so it was very, very difficult to focus on my job. And my neck felt extraordinarily weak. So uh, after a few months, I went back to a doctor and got an x-ray. And he said, yeah, you have had a fracture here, but it's healed. Um, so there's not a lot we can do apart from palliative care and um, massage and uh, painkillers, which is still pretty much the case. But my neck was never going to be well enough again to take the impacts that um, martial arts demanded of it. So what could I do? Well, I stayed at home for a while. And if you've ever had a hangover and the phone rings and the boss is on the end of the phone saying, why haven't you come to work? While you talk to him and lie, you um, your headache goes away. The adrenaline flows, the headache goes away. Your focus is, oh, my God, I've got to sell him my meal. And he knows it's Monday morning and you should not You should be at work. So I thought, I tried to think of, well, if I can focus my brain on something, um, then it'll take away my focus from the discomfort that I have in my neck constantly and the headaches. So I went to UCAS and uh, asked to do a degree at Surrey University in creative writing and um, uh, English literature. And I'd spent the next three years doing that. Is that something you kind of always wanted to do or just because you had that natural opportunity? Um, I'd written Fighting Scared, and um, which had been a, a very, very strong seller because it's my autobiography. But it took me six years to write it. Now, when a carpenter comes into your house, he can put up shelves in 20 minutes, whereas it might take you four attempts and four hours to do the same job. So I thought, I, I, I love words, I love writing. Um, I wanted to write more books. And so I thought, well, this is my way of becoming a carpenter of literature. And so I spent the next three years improving my skills. And um, then I've since I left university, I've written four books and I have others planned. Um, Can you recite one of your poems? Oh, 
Yeah, my last book was um, Warrior Poet Soldier's Songs, which is um, not only a illustrated book of poetry, but it's also uh, on Audible now as well. Um, we talked about when I left the SAS, and um, I was quite bitter. So the poem is called Illusion. I've done it, I'm in, the best has ever been, the soldiers who are best, always tougher than the rest. So hey, here I am, make us work, make us plan, give us jobs, give us courses, make us work like horses. What, no jobs, no orders, just no patrolling over borders, just rush and wait for you at Princess Gate Island. Ha! Where's that? No soldiers went on that. The action wasn't even warm unless you went on storm. Millions of dead, killed by sheets of lead. Just keep on down the track, but remember, watch your back, because if you don't, the sergeant major surely won't. Don't do any training, especially when it's raining. Just lie and cheat. Pretend to be elite. How was your relationship with your fellow students in, in university? Oh, <laughs> it was interesting, because there I am, 56 years old, a former soldier. and um, That was amazing, by the way. <laughs> and uh, you're there with a course which is 95% female under the age of 24. The uh, English department, not the creative writing department, but the English department is dominated by radical feminists. And you have to fit in as a student. Um, and it took them two years to realise that I wasn't an ageing, an ageing, uh, psychotic skinhead uh, who was homophobic, um, that I was completely the opposite. But there was a tendency for the staff to pigeonhole me. The other thing that was that uh, nobody wants to sit next to their grandpa at school. And being predominantly female, you have to be careful not to be the creepy guy who sits next to the same person two days in a row. Um, it wasn't cool to sit next wow, to me. Wow, so, so, <laughs> so many things to think about oh, just to show yeah. up to a class. Oh, huh? yeah, you can't, be, uh, you can't just go in there and be one of the guys. You know, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to worry about other people's perceptions of you. If I, I'm always early. So if I was in the so – I'd go into class, get ready, put my gear out and um, ready for the lecture, and everybody else would come in and then sit in the rows behind. If I sat in the rows behind, they would sit in the rows in front. And it wasn't they didn't like me. It was just wasn't the cool thing to do to sit next. They work well with me when you were put into groups. That was fine. Um, but um, there's a huge amount of uh, political indoctrination that goes on in universities uh, across the United Kingdom. And I don't know about the world, but definitely across the United Kingdom, where tutors are imposing their agendas on political agendas on students. So I give you one example. Um, I'm going into a Shakespeare lecture. And the tutor stands up and gives me a 10-minute tirade on uh, female genital mutilation. I think I'm paying for this. I'm paying to learn Shakespeare. You know, you want me to come to your political, uh, you know, lectures, that's fine. But that's not what I'm here for. And tutors would come in and say, hello, my name's Mary and I'm a radical feminist. Well, I don't walk into a class and give a, uh, and give a lecture and say, hi, I'm Robin, I'm a heterosexual. I mean, that's not what I do. Um, so where's the relevance of that? And, um, you know, it was, um, it was, uh, I think because of my age and maturity and experience, I, I, um, managed to put myself in the position of being a student and just being quiet and listening and, um, trying to get as much as I could out of the process. 
And did you? Was it a valuable experience? Oh yeah, it was. It was a. It was a wonder. It was a really, really good experience in many, many ways. I learned a great deal. I met some wonderful people. I was tempted to stay on, and do a masters. But the thing that really gripped me was the poetry, um, the, the forms, the shapes, the rhythms, the styles, um, the value of poetry as a way of as the way of saying things that may embarrass you or may humiliate you or may even uh, be politically dangerous. It's a valuable media uh, that you can use. It's a way of um, being a cathartic, a cathartic process as well, a catharsis. So you can express feelings that you can't necessarily express with your normal everyday vocabulary. So it's, uh, again, power of words. Um, so I enjoy it. And I am thinking carefully about whether I could go down to Cardiff University and uh, maybe do a master's in uh, in creative writing but focusing on poetry especially and learning Welsh as well your book fighting scared it seems to me very vulnerable mm. you are you're talking about things that maybe one wouldn't expect you to say or open up about having maybe, you know, just maybe read your Wikipedia page. But as an example, you know, you, th you threw in there a couple examples, I believe, of hitting women mm. in a certain situation. I, I'm, I'm there reading it, thinking to myself, or listening to it, thinking to myself, he didn't really have to put it in, in there. Um, I think that's, and that's one example. Another example that was very compelling is how open you are about the level of fear. Obviously, it's the title of the book, but the level of fear that you experienced from most of your life mm -hmm. up until those points when you're um, being selected for the SAS. I think it's, it was compelling to me and I think to a lot of people because I think we're, this is a weird thing to say, afraid of fear. Mm -hmm. When we experience fear, it does almost freeze us. It makes us feel weak it makes us um just feel incompetent to proceed in doing whatever it is we're trying to do because again you know if i uh getting on this podcast i might have an element of fear standing up speaking in front of people i might be shaking walk, you know walking up to give a speech with a glass of water um so it's it's so i think for everyone feels fear um and also you know whatever the scariest thing you've done is the scariest thing you've done. Um, so you know, you being in the SAS in the in the military is a is a different scale. But you know, in, in, in any individual in the world experiences fear, and I think reading this book, uh, I think shows that fear is normal and fear is a an opportunity. Fear is an opportunity to uh, show courage um, and really to learn about yourself. Um, what is? Did you use that? Um, that motif of fear, maybe in raising your kids? I think uh, where fear is concerned uh, in the book, I wanted, I didn't want to write a gas and basham and smashing book where do you know how hard I am and do you know what a tough guy I am and, um, you know, I'm Superman, I can leap over tall buildings and, you know, and charge into battle fearless and you know, because none of that would have been true um i wanted to tell the story of the bullied lonely insecure unpopular kid who overcomes that adversity who overcomes the suffering who overcomes the difficulties of life in order to succeed and how i did it so 
you can't um, achieve great things unless you start at the very, very bottom. You know, um, so you have to go right back down and strip off all the layers of hiding um, that we put in front of our, the facade that we put in front of ourselves every single day. People are scared to be honest about their fear. Being brave is about controlling your fear. It's not about not being frightened. It's about controlling your fear and managing to function with that anxiety going on at the same time. In Fighting Scared, um, it was very, very important for people to understand where I'd come from and the mistakes I'd made and what I was building that experience on um, and not get the impression that um, I was any different or better than they were. I've had an awful lot of young people, and the book's been out since 2003, and it's still a good seller. And I've had a lot of people over that last 20 years write to me and say, I thought there was something wrong with me until I read Fighting Scared, until I read your book, and now I realize there's nothing wrong with me at all. Something wrong with everybody else, maybe, but there's bugger all wrong with me. And your reading that book has given me the confidence to get up and go forward and carry on again. Um, there's a piece in there um, about the death of my father, right at the very end, where he dies and um, I'm sitting by his body. My stepfather, this is. And uh, I, I say to his body, I say to his corpse, why were you such a bastard to me when I was a kid? And I swear an answer came into my head, which was, I was only doing the best I could, the only way I knew how. And that's written there in the last couple of pages of Fighting Scared. And a man who was in his 60s wrote to me and said, I read that, he said, and for the first time in 30 years, I decided to get in touch with my father. And his father was in his 80s. He said, because only after I read that did I understand something about why he'd behaved the way he did and what he'd done. And that is humbling. That is also extraordinarily fulfilling because that's the sort of thing I wanted to come back from writing that story. And, and it's done that. Uh, people also blame me because they read it and joined the army as well. <laughs> they said, I read your book and then I joined the army. <laughs> I said, sorry about that. The word anxiety, can we put it together with fear? Do they go yeah, hand in it's hand? Just a, it's just a, a, a grading. Um, you could describe it as a form of fear because it's created by adrenaline flowing in your system, a preparation to deal with adversity. Um, fear, you can take up to different levels. You can take it to panic. You can take it to complete dissonance um, where you can't mentally function anymore. So all the way from panic, all the way down to anxiety with various words in between. And anxiety is where you know what you're doing, you're prepared for it, you know your heart beats up a bit, you know you've got to be switched on, you know you've got to get this right, and, and you do. Uh, 
Because I think a lot of people today use the word anxiety as almost like a, um, a crippling effect where it's almost used as describing someone who is incapable or yeah. someone describing themselves as incapable. Well, you know, somebody will, somebody will hide behind the word anxious. You're making me anxious. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm confronting you with a dis- I'm disagreeing with you. That's my right. You know, I'm, I'm I'm I want to confront you with what you just said or what you just done. And if I'm making you anxious, then fine. I'm I'm very happy about that. So stop using it as a barrier that I shouldn't be breaking down because it's not it's not somewhere you should go. Defend your position. Defend what you've just done. Defend what you've just said. Don't hide behind oh, you're being unkind to me or you're disagreeing with me or you're upsetting me or you're disrespecting me because that doesn't really hold any water at all as far as I'm concerned. You know, if you want respect, then earn it. If you want to say something that's rude, defend it and give me a reason for it. But don't walk around being rude to me and then tell, tell me you're, you're being anxious or you're offended because that's a, that isn't going to stop me. I'm not going to necessarily step out of my way to upset and offend people, but I'm certainly not going to worry about um, their anxiety if they behave badly. You've seen a lot the last few decades. Do you think now uh, nowadays is any different than the situation you know, on a world on a worldwide scale? Are we in a you know the the, the media people out there make us believe that um, we should be panicking? Um, that we're in these crazy times where we're heading into worse times um, and the future is not looking bright. What do you think? We're in an information overload world. Um, everybody's being fed information to sell product uh, 24 hours a day. Um, and people get depressed by social media. They People put stuff up on Facebook, for example, as one media. Um, where they show their best days, their best friends, how they're all happy and smiley, just like television adverts. Um, And uh, people who are unhappy think that there's something wrong with their lives. Um, Most people go through life in neutral. So they're neither happy or unhappy. And then something great happens, and they leap up into euphoria for a few hours, and then they come back down again, back into neutral. And then something tragic happens, and they drop away into depression, for a few hours or a few days, and then gradually they come back into neutral again. But when we're constantly fed bad news about every poor child that's died in a war a thousand miles away, every tragedy, every earthquake, every sad story that can possibly be thrust up your nose for for every minute and every second of every day, then, you know, crazy people make you crazy, sad people make you sad, happy people make you happy. And all you're getting thrust down your... Uh, through your visual um, points and uh, through your ears is sad and miserable information day after day after day. And if that makes you sad, you've got to discipline yourself to switch it off. Because if you feed your body rubbish, you're going to have a shit body, right? And if you feed your brain rubbish, you're going to have a screwed up brain. And if you constantly feed your brain sad and miserable information, you're going to have a sad and miserable brain. How do you teach discipline? Discipline is um, start with small, small acts of discipline. So you could, for example, decide that you're, let's um, quote Jordan B. Peterson, for example, first clean up your own room, you know. Um, he, he's a clinical, te- a clinical psychologist, and he says give people small 
tasks to do first you know make your own bed wash your wash wash your wash your face uh, have a shave um polish your shoes start to do those little things in your life before you start to judge everybody else and um and build on that one of the things about discipline is discipline should be self-discipline it shouldn't be imposed discipline so you've got to make the effort yourself and it, before you expect people to help you do half and then somebody will say well i've seen how much effort you put into that i'll help you do the other half um and it begins with little things i used to make lists i need to get through this list here's my a list my b list and my c list i get a great deal of satisfaction at ticking off those individual items and working your way through them is it, being a soldier to me i would assume that's um imposed discipline initially it is it is imposed discipline and it's discipline imposed by fear of punishment but then like for soldiers who when they leave the army um is that something that sticks with them or do they struggle to keep some, up with discipline some do um some don't because they're all they're as div- they're as different as everybody else um but um soldiers begin with imposed discipline but as time goes part goes on they move up the rank structure so they get responsibility so they're imposing discipline on others and they're learning about leadership and as i said before about the best forms of leadership and you find that your soldiers actually impose discipline upon themselves because they want to be classed as good soldiers they don't want to be classed as useless to the group um irrelevant frowned upon they want to be part of that disciplined and respected group so they discipline themselves once they've been taught how to do the job properly um the best forms of discipline are self-imposed discipline um you can put one piece of discipline in your life whether you choose it in a sport a martial art um a reading or studying process whatever it is and if you can impose discipline in one place in your life it'll spread into the other parts are you active nowadays since the uh neck in- injury um not as active as i'd like to be um the neck injury gradually healed and um i got quite physical i was running around the park and uh doing training and trying to get some of my karate kata going again and then i got um i got bladder cancer and um the chemotherapy damaged my immune system and uh the removal of somebody's bladder um is a bigger operation than a heart transplant and so i can't do many of the things that i used to do i can't walk the distances i can't swim the lengths i um i suffer from tiredness but i can speak and i've got my fingers and i've got my eyes and i can use my keyboard and so i can write and i can talk and i can impart knowledge and um and occasionally i can get enough energy together to stand up in front of a group and uh um talk about those those experiences and answer questions for a couple of hours and i love doing that still and i'll keep doing that until something else changes undergoing chemotherapy mm. you said was that a new mental experience challenge for you i think it was the hardest mental test of my entire life now i don't want to frighten people because different people experience chemotherapy in different ways and there are lots of different types of chemotherapy so don't believe that because of my experience that yours would ever be the same 
but mine was a terrible experience and it was over four months with 12 sessions and it affected me appallingly um, and uh, I curled up on my bed and I didn't want to eat and I felt like I was dying and my wife would bring him food which I would eat um, but I wouldn't have eaten it if she hadn't put it under my nose and persuaded me to and you get poisoned and you feel like death and then just as you start to feel better they poison you again and by the twelfth session the last session I phoned the hospital and said I'm not coming and the doctor at the other end said why not and I said because I'm too scared because I can't do this one more time and she said that's fine let's leave it there then I said when do I get the operation she said oh no the operation you need four months to recover from the chemotherapy before you will be fit enough to have the operation and the day I had the operation I thought well today's the day that I start to get better and um, yeah I'm still here I'm still at quality of life and um, but uh, yeah that was um, um, one of the I want, want, wanted to mention that during that time people say nice things to you and you want to scream at them because they'll say they'll use platitudes like a man like you this is a battle you can win and I just want to scream at them that it's not a battle it's an illness and I have no bloody choice and um, so um, but I didn't scream and I appreciated the fact that they were trying to be nice but I wanted to and the only person I could really talk to about it was a guy called Dave Smart who was a great friend who had had exactly the same operation and that experience when you're going through difficult times from people who have been there before you and done the same thing is so invaluable um, that applies to counselling of any sort that personal experience that personal sympathy and empathy that a person who's been through it has doesn't come from anywhere else and I use that now to counsel some of my own friends and colleagues who um, are struggling with chemotherapy and cancer now as well Robin it's um, great reading your your work um, listening to your perspective and it was a pleasure having you on today um, so I hope to see you again in the future it's my first time in Wales um, so thank you for bringing me here um, and do you want to tell people maybe where they can find your work and see you? Yeah, it's very, very simple. Just um, Robin Horsfall doesn't have an E in it. And uh, just go to robinhorsfall.com and everything leads on from there. You can put my name in Google and pages of stuff that I've done will come up. And if you're intrigued, you even get the opportunity to send me an email directly through my webpage and I try to answer everybody. Phenomenal. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it.